Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. In this episode, I'm happy to share a lecture by economist and historian Ed Knoll about the influence of scholastic thought on Adam Smith. This lecture was part of a session on new thinking about Adam Smith, jointly sponsored by the Association of Christian Economists and the History of Economics Society at the ASSA meetings almost a year ago in San Diego. Economists are not often great at studying our own history. And when we are, we too often give every thinker before the 1700s only a brief mention, before jumping straight to the classical economists. When we think this way, it's easy to imagine that everything Adam Smith wrote was totally original or that we should read him only in the context of those that came after. In this lecture, Ed Knoll walks us through a number of different ways in which Adam Smith's writing fit into the moral philosophy of his time, building on the conversations that had been ongoing among the scholastics for many years. I particularly appreciate Knoll's work here because when I teach the history of economic thought, as I will do here again starting in a few weeks, I try to give students a history that goes through ancient and medieval thought in somewhat more detail, and one of the key texts that I use to help me tell that story is actually a book by Ed Knoll, written with James Haltman. If you're interested in the connections between Christian moral philosophy and the work of Adam Smith, this lecture is a great one to listen into. Ed Knoll is a professor of economics at Westmont College and specializes in the history of economic thought, labor market regulation, and Christian thought about economics. He's also the current president of ACE. Remember that we are now just a few weeks away from the online ASSA meetings, and ACE is sponsoring two sessions at the conference that I expect to be really excellent. If you're interested in registering for the conference so that you can attend, follow the link in the show notes. Finally, before we jump to the lecture, I must apologize for cutting off the first couple of sentences of Ed's talk. I think you should be able to follow the ideas just fine, though. Scholars have become increasingly cognizant that... uh, His economic analysis is linked in significant ways to his moral philosophy. Smith's a professor of moral philosophy uh, in Scotland. And that in turn is shaped by several sources from the pre-modern era. Among the recent contributions discussing this influence is Paul Oslington's edited volume on the theological context shaping Smith's political economy. One significant part of the literature has explored the influence of scholasticism transmitted through Protestant natural law thinking on Smith's conception of economic justice in the marketplace. Now, much of this research is focused on the scholastic just price, which offers moral boundaries on trade, and Smith's natural price as presented in the microeconomics of Book One of the Wealth of Nations. But several key questions remain. How did the scholastic evaluation of the moral parameters of market activity influence Smith's broader evaluation of trade? More specifically, what role do both the scholastics and Protestant natural law jurisprudence play in shaping Smith's understanding of economic justice? How does Smith address the scholastic concern for the economically disadvantaged in the marketplace? I will argue uh, that Smith modifies the legacy of scholastic thought in presenting a distinctive moral rationale for markets. He largely spurns a theological basis for duty and economic conduct in favor of a moral rationale that's almost exclusively concerned with commutative justice. And he frames his evaluation of markets in terms of benevolent and malevolent practices. (laughs) Smith is certainly concerned about uh, 
how, uh, the, as with the scholastics and the desire to benefit the economically disadvantaged, I think it's fair to say with the march of sin that, sin, uh, that Smith favors the underdogs of society. But he does not as a whole endorse the pursuit of distributive justice in order to address the problem of economic compulsion. So we start with scholastic thinking on economic justice. And uh, as we do so, we turn to Aquinas uh, in the 13th century. By the 13th century, markets are widening across the European continent through innovations in exchange and the transport of goods. The commercial revolution is making evident the need to address the obligations of market participants. And scholastics, uh, the scholastic authors, uh, uh, draw on their key five sources to address questions of justice and exchange as uh, uh, they abandon earlier patristic zero-sum conceptions of economic activity. The five sources, uh, uh, we should be remind ourselves, for scholastic thinking involve Aristotle, often referred to as the philosopher, the Old Testament, New Testament scriptures, uh, of course, uh, as well, uh, church teaching, uh, Roman law and uh, the patristics, the uh, church fathers. And so uh, these five sources are used in the moral casuistry of the scholastics to distinguish right from wrong. Uh, a question is posed about um, uh, the just price and whether or not uh, the market price is the just price. An example would be Aquinas, who we see here on the right in his Summa Theologica asking in an application of the Eighth Commandment of the Decalogue uh, about the duty of uh, the merchant, the duty of the buyer with respect to justice. And the affirmation here is that both are duty-bound to be guided by the virtues of charity and justice. Justice is the standard of the marketplace. Charity is the virtue by which we share our surpluses with those who are too poor to participate in the market. There's not a uh, significant criteria invoked here, of course, of any economic expediency. Now, justice is understood um, by the scholastics in at least two forms. Commutative justice expresses the requirement to trade without deceit or fraud. Put directly, it's justice in exchange. Distributive justice requires the more fortunate in the marketplace to act out of a moral duty to relieve the uh, position of the less fortunate. Each form of justice is grounded in a theological rationale of obligation before God. For market exchanges, commutative justice is most often said to be achieved by following the maxim that came to be applied in daily market trade as the rule of the common estimate of the market. A thing is worth what it can be sold for. That is, commonly and in a public place to many people over several days. And more broadly, this common estimate of the market is seen to be a sensible guide for establishing a just price because it's a price reflecting an average or norm over a period of time. For the scholastics, the just price is not so much a way to achieve the common good as it is a means to protect from the evil of economic compulsion. What did they uh, think of by that? The seller of a necessity, for example, is to meet the need of a buyer who's at an economic disadvantage because of poor means, because of the death of a spouse, because of a drought, or uh, other affliction, uh, uh, unfortunate incident, I should say, in an agrarian setting. While duly considering his own needs, the seller should not take undue advantage of his neighbors, not engage in economic compulsion. And making use of economic advantage is more than simply the seller overcharging a buyer. 
Some examples of the particular economic instance of fraud and deceit named by the scholastics include these here. Using different scales for buying and selling, making one arm of the scales longer than the other, counting falsely, selling bad for good, a worthless substance for a precious one, a sick horse for a healthy one, rotten meat for fresh, soaking wool in certain spices to make them heavier, diluting wine or otherwise adulterating and uh, mixing liquid goods, counterfeiting, clipping, of course, that had to do with um, <coughs> coin that could be uh, clipped off and otherwise mutilating coins. And it's reflected in the citation from Odd Langholm. Um, uh, much of this is uh, presented in terms of advice from the scholastics to those who are um, <coughs> hearing confession. And so a merchants, as, uh, as trade widens in Europe, merchants, uh, bankers concerned about the question of lending at interest, how are they to avoid the um, question of uh, the charge against usury. This is counsel provided to those folks uh, in the, by the uh, clerics and the scholastics in turn are advising them how to give counsel to folks worried about uh, economically sinning against God. <clears throat> The scholastics then aimed also to counter monopolistic practices uh, by setting maximum legal prices to protect the needs of the community of neighbors with respect to particular markets. Now, as we move into the 15th century with the Italian scholastics, such as San Bernardino in, uh, of Siena and San Antonino of Florence, uh, they recognized the legitimacy of compensation for the elements of risk in transporting and storing goods. With more traders engaged as intermediaries, Price are equalized uh, across markets. The greater the number of traders in the marketplace, the less likelihood that any one buyer will suffer by being in a position of economic duress. With the founding of the Spanish Salamanca School in the first half of the 16th century, Christian reflection on economics and justice becomes more complex. These folks, also known as the late scholastics, are more explicit in describing the different elements involved in consideration of establishing a market price as the just price. It seemed to be a price within a just latitude or margin. And Louis de Molina, uh, in the um, late uh, 16th, early 17th century, establishes a helpful elaboration on the basis for the just price in his work on contracts. Uh, here's what he writes. Here's Louis de Molina. And here's what he has to say in his work, um, De Jure et Justia. When a new product is brought to a, a certain region, the just price is to be determined by prudent judgment, taking account of the quality, the utility, and the plenty of scarcity or scarcity of the good, attention also being paid to expenses and risk and difficulties involved in its production. Furthermore, the novelty of a thing tends to make it more precious. This is not the kind of statement you'd find uh, really so much in um, a, a SCOTUS, our earlier scholastics, we have, again, a bit more complexity going on, uh, a reflection here of the nature of markets uh, with the Spanish scholastics. Furthermore, Molina says, on the basis of these and other occasional expenses, the just price of the good is established, either by government officials or by the buyers and sellers themselves. Nor shall any price be held to be unjust because a great profit is gained on it. If it's held to be precious because, it's, because of its rarity or newness or because there are many buyers. Nor can any other rule be given on this subject. Again, from uh, translate from Latin on Justice and the Law, uh, De Molina's work. 
So Molina allows that a just price may be set by local officials or, in effect, the action of buyers or sellers in a competitive market. For the uh, Spanish scholastics, monopoly profit involves different considerations because it arises out of economic advantage against common market conditions. Uh, another of the scholastics, Cardinal Cayetan, reproves the monopolist because he raises price above the common estimate of the market and thereby imposes price on his own terms. These monopoly profits are seen as terpe lucrum, or illicit gain. Uh, another scholastic, as Pilquita, elaborates on the moral problem of leveraging an advantage against buyers. A thing is, a thing is worth what it can be sold for in the absence of monopoly, fraud, and deceit. If these common uh, market conditions hold, there's no compulsion. These are elements that come to be recognized as part of commutative justice. But here it's important to understand the basis for the scholastic critique of monopoly and not read the Spanish scholastics anachronistically with anachronism. The benefits of the common estimate of the market don't flow from the form of perfect competition depicted in neoclassical theory. Rather, the schoolmen's opposition to various kinds of monopolies is instead linked to their conviction of justice being violated because of the disadvantage of one party or the other. And by the way, they do speak of instances where sellers are disadvantaged and as well. Um, <clears throat> monopolistic activity related to food products would draw a particular ire. It would be seen as leveraging advantage over the poor household in dire need. Inducing dearth becomes a catchword describing the way illicit gains could be obtained through market manipulation. The scholastics emphasize the economic difficulty for a community that arises when someone buys up all the supplies of a certain necessary and others are forced to buy from him at a price that it pleases him to charge. So the scholastics are keenly interested in applying Christian values to establish norms of economic behavior. They don't espouse the notion of voluntary exchange in precisely its modern form. They're concerned that after a transaction each side enters into freely, one might find themselves harmed due to a lack of knowledge. As one commentator puts it, it was implicit in the scholastic explanation that ignorance on the part of the buyer or the seller could in certain cases render the transaction involuntary. And so the late scholastics rebuked those who took advantage of an ignorant consumer. When we come to the late 16th and early 17th century, Spain and much of the rest of Europe are in economic transition. Of course, there's the uh, exploration of the Americas that's bringing precious metals to Europe for over a century. There are agricultural innovations turning a subsistence-based approach to farming into a market-driven one. In manufacturing, an ongoing division of labor is strongly increasing volumes of trade. And in this era, the late scholastic authors are pointing out instances of commutative injustice where there are explicit deviations of the market price from the just price. <clears throat> they presuppose that each market participant bears the imago dei, the image of God, and this thus has an obligation to trade with God's will in mind. To the Spanish doctors, this causal relation presupposes an ethical, responsible subject whose knowledge of the economic circumstances, shortage or abundance of goods, number of buyers and sellers, quantity of money, never deprives them of his moral responsibility. And so the scholastics uh, are, of course, providing guidance uh, for, as I say, not only the priests, but others who are uh, giving counsel to market participants. Uh, in my next section of the work, I, I look at the influence of the Protestant natural jurisprudential tradition as represented by Hugo Grotius and Samuel Pufendorf, Grotius being the Dutchman and Pufendorf the German uh, 
uh, scholars who work in uh, political science, but also write uh, on economics, and they're significant, particularly Pufendorf is, because Smith's notable teacher, Francis Hutchison, draws upon Pufendorf's work in his presentation of the market basis for prices. Hutchison's work, of course, in turn, to some degree, guides Smith's reasoning about economic justice. <clears throat> and uh, we find the natural law framework of discourse respecting rights, duties, and obligation influencing Pufendorf's perspective on the economic duress imposed by merchants' pricing necessities for sale. But here it's notable, we start to see a turn in thinking about the moral parameters guiding market participants. Pufendorf asserts that a merchant has a right of setting even an outrageous price since the potential buyer could refuse the terms. Christian uh, charity laid an obligation upon the seller to price fairly, but the law recognizes a seller's right to a profit. As uh, one commentator uh, explained, the avaricious merchant offended against his imperfect obligation to act humanely and not against the law, except, of course, if he actually caused someone to starve to death. Uh, Pufendorf is not appealing to the need for distributive justice to govern the seller's actions, but he makes it possible to say that while there is a right, a kind of imperfect right, of a poor person to material aid, it's the, not of the kind of right that it has to be enforced. That turn in thinking about the kind of obligation held by the seller of necessity to the poor starts to shape Smith's thinking in the 18th century. So, Smith's conception of economic justice draws directly on the scholastic tradition. In the moral sentiments, he discusses different terms for justice and elaborates on its uh, ancient and medieval sense. And to give you an example of this from the moral sentiments, here's what Smith has to say in discussing uh, his ideas about justice. In one sense, we're said to do justice when we abstain from doing uh, him any positive harm and do not directly hurt him, either in his person or in his state, or in his reputation. The first sense of the word coincides with what Aristotle and the schoolmen call commutative justice, and with what Grotius calls the justitia expletrix, in which consists in abstaining from what is another's and in doing voluntarily whatever uh, we can with propriety be forced to do. And uh, the Latin term, for those of us wanting to learn at least a Latin term once a week, is there is uh, justice executed, the execution of justice there. Smith distinguishes the natural price from the market price. He draws on Pufendorf for that. Of course, the notion being the natural price is the one that covers the cost of production, and the market price, the, the price that reflects the impact of other factors, the actual price at which the commodity sells. Uh, as uh, Chapeling and Lapidus observe, Smith now makes use of this approach, but free from its submission to moral ends. The market price is interpreted in the lectures of jurisprudence and later in the Wealth of Nations in relation to the natural price, as the current price was interpreted in relation to the just price, but the possible differences are no longer considered in terms of the morality of the partners to the transaction. Now that contrast should not be overstated here, um, in his appeal to the way in which the market price adjusts through the competitive actions of entry and exit to approximate the market price and thereby satisfy commutative justice, Smith finds in accord with scholastic thought that the natural price flows from the equity established by economic participants directed by the marketplace to compete without malfeasance. Young rightly notes, Smith's conception of the natural price is a descendant of the scholastic's just price in that they both represent 
commonly agreed estimations of a fair price. In the same vein, Smith will describe the connection between profits, the natural price, and commutative justice. Smith is clear that each merchant can expect to make the ordinary rate of profit in the particular market for their products, and as the natural price rises over time, so will the profit to the merchant. Otherwise, the merchant exits the market in pursuit of a higher return. Now, uh, in the next section of my paper, I turn to uh, the ways in which uh, Smith's uh, analysis begins to contrast a bit with the uh, scholastics. Certainly, we can point out that Smith critiques uh, the scholastic moral casuistry as a method of analysis. As a moral philosopher, he seeks to understand um, personal actions in the marketplace. Self-love motivates exchange, as we all know from the famous quote of Smith about um, how you must appeal to the um, butcher, the baker, the brewer, based on self-love and not your own considerations. But Smith discusses extensively other motivations, such as the pursuit of virtue. And this is a much larger discussion, but with Maria Paganelli and others, I find uh, there's not fundamentally a conflict with uh, Smith's portrayal of human behavior in, uh, in, in uh, moral sentiments. Uh, with that, what well, he presents in the inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Again, a much broader discussion. But to quote uh, Maria, um, rather than employing an approach focused on human behavior, which implies a sort of mechanical response to specific experience, Smith explores human conduct, which relies on an understanding of the different circumstances in which, and the different motivations in response to which, an action takes place. The moral element of human nature comes to the foreign markets. And that can be expressed in a continuum that Smith presents, uh, benevolence to malevolence. <clears throat> and so what is Smith thinking of in this uh, regard here? How are humans characterized by desires to be approved of by others? Some uh, as well at, at times characterized by avaricious desires. And also we recognize desires to dominate others. The benevolent model portrays human conduct as driven by self-love combined with other regarding impulses. The malevolent model recognizes that self-love manifests itself in avarice and the desire to dominate. Benevolence works out in terms of uh, settings of personal trade, such as among family and friends. People are more inclined to act out of benevolence and trade with their neighbor. Personal transactions lead each party to constrain their self-interest in accord with what Smith sees as, quoting him, the principles of natural justice, unquote. Benevolence is not driven here, notice, by a duty uh, of an obligation to the creator so much, but an act guided by the impulse of the impartial spectator within each person. But in the case of impersonal exchange among strangers, moral irregularities rooted in avarice and the desire to dominate are more likely to be operative. Malevolence can dominate economic actions. And Smith will speak of the natural insolence of man, the characteristic of mean rapacity, uh, and the spirit of monopoly. This uh, problem of monopoly, in fact, illustrates malevolent conduct for Smith. The scholastics would point, as we mentioned earlier, to artificially restricting supply. Smith's emphasis, though, is on the source of monopoly privilege. In virtually every instance, a monopolist position derives from an act of government or is tolerated by the government. These are the particular regulations of police that Smith describes in The Wealth of Nations. Whether he's speaking about regulations limiting the number of apprentices in an incorporated trade, with the bylaws of regulated companies discouraging new entrants into that trade, 
Smith emphasizes that such measures empower monopolists to restrict the availability of a given commodity. Now, he also identifies other examples of malevolent economic practices that include colonialism, mercantilism, and slavery. And uh, he sees that as an outworking of the natural love of dominance over others that individuals uh, manifest. Smith establishes this framework, I, I contend, with inherited values from scholasticism that have been modified by the Protestant natural jurisprudential tradition and transmitted to Smith through Hutchison. But while drawing on this heritage, Smith uh, affirms humans are accountable to the deity. That's a term he often uses in uh, moral sentiments uh, for uh, God and finds that religion enforces the natural sense of deity, but he affirms we cannot know the mind of God. Instead, in the main, we know about God's purpose through the created order, what theologians refer to as natural revelation. Smith seeks to get ground his moral parameters for economics in a natural theology, largely detached from a grounding in scripture as God's word or special revelation. <clears throat> Individuals may profess a belief in accountability to the creator as a basis for their economic conduct, says Smith, but oftentimes they act from a regard to general rules of morality that come from uh, especially natural revelation. Now, um, I, um, in the final part of the paper here, I have three examples of how Smith addresses and approaches the moral rationale for markets in comparison and contrast with uh, scholastics. And so I'll turn to those here to, um, uh, to wrap this uh, up. And uh, the first is Smith on wage bargaining in the labor market, the economic disadvantage of the laborer. Smith emphasizes a central role for the balance of bargaining power, but he highlights the countervailing uh, desires of laborers and their employers. What are the common wages of labor, he says, in uh, chapter eight of book one of the Wealth of Nations, depends everywhere upon the contract usually made between those two parties, whose interests are by no means the same. The workmen desire to get as much, the masters to give as little as possible. Any single laborer, of course, in uh, needing to be paid sooner, is put at a disadvantage. That's something, by the way, the scholastics, San Antonino, would emphasize as well, drawing from the book of Leviticus. Don't withhold the wages from the labor because of the uh, worker's disadvantage there. So Smith goes on to say, it's not, however, difficult to foresee which of the two parties between the employer and the uh, labor must, upon all ordinary occasions, have the advantage in the disputes and force the other into a compliance with their terms. <clears throat> in all such disputes, the masters can hold out much longer. <clears throat> the labor's bargaining position is further undermined because employers often combine and therefore buttress their ability to keep wages from rising above the market level. As Smith observes, masters are always and everywhere in a sort of tacit but constant and, and uniform combination not to raise wages of labor above their actual rate. <clears throat> the difficulty here, and I have a piece in uh, the Journal of History of Economic Thought on this, is that um, the combinations of workers are prohibited by parliamentary law, but they're tolerated. Combinations among employers are allowed. They then have the advantage in the law for those hiring labor. And Smith found such unequal treatment a violation of commutative justice. He expresses forthrightly his position that, uh, here it is, labor market combinations cannot be prohibited by any law consistent with liberty and justice. 
adding that though the law hinder, uh, cannot hinder people the same trade from sometimes assembling together, it ought to do nothing to facilitate such assemblies, much less to render them necessary. So Smith doesn't want to endorse uh, the uh, people of the same trade coming together and conspiring, but not ban that either, both for the master, the employer, and for the worker. So uh, Smith is recognizing, much as the scholastics did, the disadvantageous mm -hmm. economic position the uh, uh, laborers are put in. But he doesn't invoke here a Christian duty to act uh, in consideration of loving one's neighbor as a systematic institutional practice in bargaining for wages so that commutative justice is avoided. At the same time, Smith will say, look, uh, to uh, pursue a virtuous life, you ought to engage in acts of beneficence. To live a, a fully virtuous life, one needs to engage uh, and acts of charity for others. They're, to quote Smith, they're like an ornament which embellishes, not the foundation which supports the building, but which is justice, but acts of charity are like that ornament, while justice is the main pillar that upholds the whole edifice. Accordingly, beneficent actions in exchange are applauded by the impartial spectator. Now, my uh, next example is on the problem of famines and how Smith looks at the social benefit of relying on the grain merchant to allocate available grain. So just briefly on this, uh, again, where there's an inadequate supply of grain leading to a famine, the scholastics allowed for distributive equity to overrule commutative justice, while Smith did not. But Smith says if it, when that does happen, when there are efforts to um, overrule commutative justice, those suffering from economic duress in the end won't benefit because he identifies what he sees as the unintended consequences of governmental efforts to end famine. When governments respond to times when there's a bad harvest by artificially lowering prices, the boost in consumption depletes the supply of grain. A policy that instead frees grain prices to rise raises the grain consumption, leading more available to the poor. Smith says, when scarcity is real, the best thing that can be done for the people is divide the inconveniences of it as equally as possible through all the different months and weeks and days of the year. The entrance of the corn merchant makes him study to do this as, ex as exactly as he can, and as no other person can have either the same interests or the same knowledge or the same abilities to do it exactly as he, this most important operation of commerce ought to be trusted entirely to him, the seller of the grain, or in other words, the corn trade. Corn used in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century was a broad term for oat, wheat, barley, corn uh, covered the waterfront there for grain. So far as lease has concerns, the supply of the home market ought to be left perfectly free. Markets outperform the decisions of the regulator allocating available grain, says Smith. The price mechanism will function to clear the market period by period until the next harvest. In this way, the scarcity will be communicated to the consumer when it's first apparent, not when stocks are completely gone or so low that famine is inevitable. So um, the last uh, example I here, have here is Smith on the malevolence of the mercantile system towards the poor. He observes how the poor are often neglected in society, and the human misery of the poor and wretched, Smith says, derives principally from a lack of compassion and companionship. He uh, depicts the privileged gains that are made by wealthy shippers, producers, and merchants. Uh, critiquing the mercantile system, Smith says, it's the industry which is carried on for the benefit of the rich and powerful that's principally encouraged by our mercantile system. That which is carried on for the benefit of the poor and indigent is too often either neglected or oppressed. But here Smith uh, 
doesn't necessarily argue, uh, again, uh, in a sort of scholastic fashion for an intervention in the marketplace always to uh, relieve uh, the poorest position. Ultimately, he's going to appeal for the prospects of economic growth to raise people out of poverty. In generating greater productivity, the division of labor extends its benefits to the lowest ranks of the people. And Smith will distinguish between a stationary state, a weak state or, or a contracting state of growth, and a progressive state of growth. And again, in a piece I have in the history of political economy, I take up more on this and the question of the just wage. But here I'll just uh, point out what Smith has to say, say about this. The progressive state, the state in which the economy is growing, while the society is advancing to the further acquisition, rather than when it has acquired its full complement of riches, it's in that state that the condition of the laboring poor, or the great body of the people, seems to be the happiest and the most comfortable. So Smith is going to argue that while the uh, poor are responsible, free uh, agents, and we ought to re respect their moral status, ultimately they're served well by policies that foster economic growth. And uh, those policies uh, would include salutary activities that would be the key for sustaining the economic growth that benefits the poor. I have some concluding remarks about further directions and research, but I think I'll end it uh, here. And I will welcome your questions and comments on the paper. That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash faithfuleconomy and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.